Blue Wire. Touchdown pass, 5-4-0 in the 5-0-4. Jackson takes it himself, look at him dart back and forth. Oh, he broke his ankle. Watson stays on his feet, throws on the run, touchdown. Watson, a magician. Mahomes winds it up wide open. Welcome to another episode of the My Sports Update Football Podcast. I am your host, Ari Mayrov. We are still taking things day by day, just trying to figure out what's going to happen as the days and weeks go by. Will there be a football season? Will it start on time? Nobody really knows. We did get news, though, that several players from the Dallas Cowboys and Houston Texans tested positive for COVID-19, and that includes Ezekiel Elliott. And this is now where things really get interesting because if there was ever going to be a pandemic in the world and you had to choose a time for it, there was probably no, I guess we call it, better time for it to happen for the NFL than March. Like right after the Super Bowl, there's no games on the slate, none of that going on. You could do free agency, you could do the draft, all of that happened. All was good. And this is now really where the league might start sweating it out a little bit because we are talking about billions and billions of dollars that the league could end up losing if they just play games but without fans. So as we get closer to July, the league is going to have some major decisions to make. And if there's any pluses right now, it is the fact that the NFL will get a chance to see what the NBA ends up doing when they come back to action next month. But um, there are a lot of questions now as we get closer to training camp and eventually as we get closer and closer to the regular season. On this week's episode of the My Sports Update Football Podcast, we are going to be looking at one specific team, and that is the Minnesota Vikings. Vikings reporter Matthew Collar joins me. The Vikings have been in the news a lot this offseason, and most recently because of Dalvin Cook, and I discussed that and much more with Matt. It was just a really good conversation on everything Vikings. But before we go to Matt, a quick word from our exclusive sponsor, BetOnline.ag. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partner, BetOnline.ag. Sports is slowly making its way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? Bet Online has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets for you to check out. Visit betonline.ag and use the promo code BLUEWIRE, B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E, for your free welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering experts. So now here is my discussion with Matthew Collar as we discuss this Vikings team including Dalvin Cook's holdout, Kirk Cousins trading away Stephon Diggs, the Vikings draft, they had 15 draft picks, the rest of the NFC North, and much more. We covered a lot. It's a jam-packed discussion. So here it is, my full discussion with Matthew Collar. 
Alrighty, joining me now here on the My Sports Update Football Podcast, he covers the Minnesota Vikings and he's the host of the popular Purple Insider Podcast. It is Matthew Collar. Matt, what's going on? How are you? I am doing really well and uh, just wondering what's next in the Minnesota Vikings news cycle when the entire league has almost no news going on. Somehow, the Vikings find a way to be in the mix with news, uh, with Delvin Cook holding out. And with this team, I have found from covering them that you never do know what's coming next. Yep, if there is one team in the NFL that somehow finds a way to always be in the news when there is not much going on, it is the Minnesota Vikings, and that is the case once again. So let's get right into it. This offseason has been one like we've never seen before. A lot has happened involving this Vikings team. I want to start with the latest news involving this team, and it is Dalvin Cook. As you said, he is holding out. He wants a new contract. Now, I know the Vikings tend to get their extensions done right before training camp. This is my question for you to start. Do you think the Vikings look at Cook? like the Cowboys valued Ezekiel Elliott or do they value him like the Chargers did with Melvin Gordon where the Chargers had Austin Eckler ready to go and he was ready to come in he was really great for them and in this case the Vikings have Alexander Madison who many people like what side do you think the Vikings are on with this I think the truth on that one is somewhere in the middle because with Ezekiel Elliott, he was healthy the entire time that he was the centerpiece of the Dallas Cowboys offense, whereas Delvin Cook has not been. He had the ACL tear, he had a hamstring injury in 2018 that kept him out, and then a shoulder injury last year that uh, caused him to miss some time. And then even when you just look at games played, there were several other games where he's playing through the injury or he was on a pitch count and things like that. So his uh, amount of actual action is less than it even looks like in the games played. But when he has been in, he has been remarkably good. I mean, one of the, I would say, top three or four running backs in the NFL. He's been able to show the ability to catch the ball out of the backfield. He turns negative plays into positives. He could turn a positive play into a 75-yard touchdown. That he's every bit what the Vikings dreamed about when they got him in the second round in 2017 as a player when he's on the field. So I don't think they look at him as, oh, we'll just find somebody else. Alexander Madison could be every bit as good as Delvin Cook because he's just not as talented as Delvin Cook. As much as he is a a nice number two, uh, asking him to do all the things that Cook does for the Vikings offense and be the centerpiece of a team that wants to run the ball a lot. I mean, that's uh, a difference between a lot of other teams when they look at their running back situations is – The Vikings want to be close to 50-50 run and pass because they know how dangerous Dalvin Cook is and they know how much he impacts uh, the way defenses react to play action and things like that. So he is very valuable to their offense. They also love him as a franchise. Mike Zimmer loves Dalvin Cook. The locker room loves Dalvin Cook. They look at him as kind of a quiet leader and, and and a player that they like to rally around because he was so heavily criticized when he came out of the draft for character concerns. It's been the exact opposite since he's been in Minnesota. He's become a community guy and, and all those things that they would have hoped he would become when he first arrived. So they love them as much as Dallas loved Ezekiel Elliott, but they also have the chip on their side of the fact that he has had those injuries. And there's also the risk that they'll be taking on by signing him to a longer term contract. 
Right, and Cook is coming off a season with over 1,600 total yards. He had 13 touchdowns on the year. And Rick Spielman, the general manager, recently said that he has been really impressed with Cook, not only not only on the field, but also off the field, where when he came into the league, as you said, there were some concerns with him. But he has been doing a lot in the community, and Spielman said he has been really impressed with him. I know there's a lot that goes into a structure of a deal, but what number do you think would be fair for both sides? You know, we've heard David Johnson is at $13 million per year. McCaffrey is leading the way at $16 million a year. What number do you think makes sense for both sides? Well, I think that Cook probably isn't getting on the field unless the Vikings get at least over $10 million a year. And the, the thing about David Johnson's extension that I found interesting when using our friends at Over the Cap and looking mm-hmm. at the breakdown of his salaries, even though it's $13 million a year, his salary cap was, was hits have, were spread out. So it's never $13 million on the, cal- on the salary cap. And I think that the Vikings do a tremendous job, maybe one of the tops in the entire league, of finding ways to spread out the cap hits and being able to fit it underneath the salary cap, despite the fact that they have a lot of other high paid players. And they also have the fact that going into 2021 and everything comes along with a COVID asterisk, because we don't know if the salary cap will ultimately drop, but let's assume that it doesn't. The Vikings go from being in one of the worst salary cap situations to one of the, I would say mid pack or one of the better ones because Mm -hmm. of the number of players that come off the books. Someone like Riley Reed, uh, would create about 11 million. Plus there's a bunch of Stefan Diggs cap space that will uh, be more open for 2021. So they can afford Delvin Cook if they want to. It's really how much hardball do they want to play with Delvin Cook's side? And also on Delvin Cook's side, how much do you really want? There was one report that he was asking for north of the 16 million. Well, that's probably just not going to happen. So can these two sides meet in the middle? The number that I have kind of in my head would be something like a four-year extension for $50 million or something like that with maybe half of that guaranteed. That gives you your superstar running back back for the Vikings that's not going to harm you long-term or even if the deal goes bust uh, with your salary cap. And then from Cook's side, it's life-changing money. But I also have been told that on Cook's side, they feel like they're worth more than that. So I think that there's going to have to be a lot of negotiation here. Last year, Kyle Rudolph was looking for an extension. Things got a little tense between him and the team, Mm -hmm. but ultimately he comes back. Anthony Barr was ready to sign with another team. Ultimately, the Vikings met his price and he comes back. Their recent history is they find a way to work these things out. Yeah, and that's the thing. And when you ask people around the league which teams do the best at handling their cap, the answer you get most is the Minnesota Vikings and the San Francisco 49ers. Those two teams do a stellar job at handling their cap situation. And, you know, I put out a tweet recently, and I want to read it here because it is so amazing to me. This is just a list of running backs with one year left on their contract. So there is Dalvin Cook, of course. Then there is Aaron Jones. Derek Henry, Leonard Fournette, Joel Mixon, Alvin Kamara, Kenyon Drake, Todd Gurley, James Conner. The list goes on and on. Chris Carson, Marlon Mack, Tariq Cohen, Kareem Hunt. I mean, there are so many names, and I'm not even including all the running backs coming in the draft next year. So with all that being said, I want to put you in Rick Spielman's shoes for a second. Considering the fact that Dalvin Cook has not played a full season yet, 
And considering the fact that there will be so many running backs available next year, which side are you on? Are you on the side, let's pay this guy top money, or let's save that money and use it elsewhere on a different position? It's a really hard one because I've sat there in the press box for the last three years watching Delvin Cook be a human highlight reel. I I mean, be really truly better than other players at his position, like few that I've seen. And, you know, this was a team that had Adrian Peterson, but Delvin Cook can do more in the passing game, more in the pass blocking game, these little things that make a big difference. And I think if I was sitting in Rick Spielman's chair, the thing I would be most concerned about is that as, as far as we know, Rick Spielman and Mike Zimmer do not have contract extensions as of this moment. And I think there's a lot of pressure from ownership for both of them to win this year and show that they could be a contender maybe again in 2021 after some of these rookies like Justin Jefferson and Jeff Gladney and Ezra Cleveland after they develop for a year and then you kind of have almost like a reboot of what they had before building up from 2014 to when they were in the NFC Championship in 2017. So I would be concerned about having to go elsewhere for that position other than a guy that I know is really in that upper upper, upper area of, of the position and knowing how much it matters to Gary Kubiak, how much it means to the offense, I would probably try to find a way to sign him knowing that we can work around the salary cap later. However, if the Vikings do not, I totally get it. I mean, you see running backs who get drafted and come right in and they're great right away. It is not one of those positions like left tackle or cornerback that needs a year or two of development before guys feel like they've got their feet on solid ground in the NFL. It's give the guy the ball. He's great right away. Delvin Cook in his first game went over 100 yards. It was spectacular against the New Orleans Saints and was trending toward being a, a Pro Bowl running back if he hadn't torn his ACL. So they could look at it and say, well, we'll just draft another guy. Or, well, like you said, we'll just sign one of those other running backs that comes out at a cheaper price. This was a team that went to the NFC Championship with a cheap Latavius Murray and Jarek McKinnon, who they had drafted in the third round and developed. It's not impossible to do, and they do have an offensive coordinator who has a long history of finding guys and and making them into something, like your Mike Andersons and Tatum Bells. So if the Vikings did decide to really, truly play hardball, they, they can. But if it were me, I think I would be saying, you know what? If we can do it, if it's not destroying the cap for the future, which the Vikings rarely put themselves in that position, I would prefer to have this player. You know, you mentioned Gary Kubiak and you mentioned the success he's had with running backs in the past. Regardless of who the running back is, Kubiak has had a lot of success. If you look at it, Terrell Davis, Clinton Portis, Orlandis Gray, Arian Foster in Houston, CJ Anderson in Denver. Justin Forsett, I believe, in Baltimore. You said Mike Mike Anderson. All those guys I just said, they rushed for over 1,000 yards in a season under Kubiak. So just how will this offense look under Kubiak with Kevin Stefanski now in Cleveland? Because the history shows that his offenses have always outperformed expectations. Yeah, I think a lot of the same from what we saw last year. Now, the big difference is that they don't have Stephon Diggs, and that is significant. All the pressure is going to be on Adam Thielen. But if you remember, even last year, Adam Thielen got hurt for a significant part of the season, and you had Stephon Diggs as just the 
lone guy out there and his number two was BC Johnson and Irv Smith was a rookie. So he only had a limited amount of targets and snaps as well. And yet their offense was still able to thrive and succeed with running a lot of the play actions, a lot of the bootlegs, the thing that Gary Kubiak is, is famous for. And it was the Gary Kubiak offense operated by Kevin Stefanski and tweaked by Kevin Stefanski and modernized by Kevin Stefanski. Mm -hmm. But the players have said in their Zoom calls that the media has been on, this is the exact same offense. And that actually helps them, I think, for considering the you know, COVID-adjusted circumstances we were talking about is these guys you know, have not been able to get together for OTAs or mini camps or anything else like that, but they already know the offense. It's really just Justin Jefferson, who's new. And aside from that, you're bringing back almost everybody else. Thielen knows the offense. Irv Smith knows the offense. Kirk Cousins, obviously. And with the, the running game and that success of Kubiak in the past, it is interesting because when he's had star-level players like Terrell Davis and Arian Foster, they've been bumped up to superstars. And when he's had average players, they've been bumped up to quality or even a little bit above. And I think that if they didn't go with Delvin Cook, they would still be a very good offense. But one thing you see when you watch back the games on, on the game tape, the All-22, is you just see how much defensive coordinators put into stopping Delvin Cook. And so I, I guess I would say the expectations, if Cook is back, would be very high, would be you should be a top 10 offense. You should be right in the, in the ballpark where you were last year, even if you don't have Stephon Diggs. And if Cook isn't there, well, th then I do think they will face some more challenges than they did last year. Interesting, because, you know, we just talked about the running backs and how much success Kubiak has had with the running backs. If you look at the quarterbacks he's had also, he's had a lot of success with a guy like Matt Schaub in Houston or even Jake Plummer, if you look back in the day. And I think Kirk Cousins is better than both those guys. I've always thought that Kirk Cousins, he gets too much hate and deserves more respect. But do you believe Kirk is the guy who could get the Vikings over the hump into the promised land eventually? Well, I think that the things that Kirk Cousins often gets criticized for are usually right. Now, I don't mean like last year when everyone lost it for him apologizing to Adam Thielen for an overthrow. That was an overreaction. Yeah. Um, but when we're talking about some of the biggest pressure games, biggest pressure moments that he has not come through. And really it's not just in Minnesota, but it's over the length of his career. You go back to 2017 or I'm sorry, 2018. Uh, and he's got a week 17 game against the Chicago bears. If he shows up in that game, they make the playoffs and he doesn't and they fall apart and you go out to San Francisco last year. And I know San Francisco's defense took them all the way to the Super Bowl, So it's a tough task, but still you end up with cousins throwing for what 150 yards or something like that. Um, and that was after a, an early big touchdown to Stephon Diggs, that there was basically a no-show after that. And I think that his shortcomings are so clear to the eye. Like when you look at the statistics, you're impressed by the quarterback rating, the completion percentage. But when you watch him on a consistent basis, you also see the severe lack of mobility that he has. That in today's game, you have 75% of the quarterbacks can take off and run. That is not something that Kirk Cousins can do. You have a lot of great quarterbacks who can make plays off schedule, on the move, escaping pressure, stepping up in the pocket. Those are things that Cousins really doesn't thrive from doing. And I ran into a stat the other day that he's lost since 2015. He's lost the third most yards to sacks of any quarterback in the NFL. And you see that 
a lot with those drive killing sacks and, and things like that. So, you know, I think that well, Cousins is a perfect fit for Kubiak and is highly accurate, great arm, and can win you a lot of games. He sets your floor at seven or eight wins, even if you don't have a good team. We saw that in 2017 in Washington. But I also think that it, when people analyze this game closely, you see why there hasn't been more winning. And what was really impressive last year is that Gary Kubiak found a lot of ways to work around those shortcomings and get them into the playoffs and get them a playoff win. And, and Kevin Stefanski, too. He deserves just as much credit as Kubiak. But the Kubiak offense is a perfect fit. But there's still those things that keep him just short of being considered one of the elite quarterbacks. You know, I look at Kirk Cousins, I wouldn't put him in that elite group, but I feel like everyone is just so all over the map with Kirk. I want to play a little bit of a game here because I just want to, you know, see where he is for you. So I'll give you a quarterback. Tell me if you're taking Kirk or this other quarterback I'll name. I'll only do five. Let's not do too much. But let's start with Jimmy Garoppolo. Jimmy or Kirk Cousins? I would take Jimmy Garoppolo. And I know the stats people would probably say don't use win-loss record. But if you go 21-5 and to start your career in good circumstances versus a guy who in good circumstances in Minnesota has averaged nine wins per season, um, I'm probably going to go with Jimmy G. I think what Jimmy G has a little bit that Cousins doesn't is a little more of a baller mentality, a little more of like, you know, I'll, I'll throw it up to a guy, I'll let loose, which does result in some more interceptions and mistakes. And I think that they're put into the same category as a perfect Kyle Shanahan execute the offense type of quarterback. But I think Garoppolo just has that little bit of an edge and that there also has to be a reason why he has won so many more games because they've both had really good setups. They both had good teams, good defenses, good running games and all those things. And Garoppolo seems to, maybe it's just more consistent. If you look at um, Kirk Cousins, there's a lot of highs, but there's also a lot of lows. When you end up with a hundred quarterback rating, it's a lot of 120 and 80 or, or well, you know, he usually has a high completion percentage, so that helps his, his quarterback rating. But you know what I mean? If you look at the PFF grades for Kirk Cousins on a season-to-season basis, it's a roller coaster. It's a lot of games like he had against Green Bay this year twice, where it's just complete no-shows and you can't win at all, even if your team plays well. I don't think Garoppolo has those. Interesting. So what about someone who just broke out last year in Titans quarterback Ryan Tannehill? That's the tough part is that Ryan Tannehill broke out on less than 300 passes. Uh, Matt Stafford threw more passes than Ryan Tannehill last year. And I think about Kirk Cousins. I mean, imagine if you only took Kirk Cousins month of October and you looked at it when he was the player of the month and he had something like 130 quarterback rating through the month of October and said, okay, that was his season. You would think the guy was the greatest quarterback of all time. Like this is not how football works. It's already a small sample in one season where we see major ups and downs. So it's not shocking that in 270 or whatever number of attempts Tannehill had that someone could have a 117 quarterback rating and be rated extremely high by PFF and all those things. But he's going to need a much bigger sample to say, oh yeah, well, he's definitely better than Kirk. I do think though, that he went through so much in Miami, he was starting to, before his injury, show some flashes of being a good quarterback. And a lot of these guys through history do need years of development before they start to reach their peak. So I think that Tannehill can be good, but I don't think that what we're going to see this year is what we got last year. So I think I would go with Cousins. All right. What about someone who is in a situation right now, which looks kind of similar to what Kirk Cousins had in Washington with his contract it is Dak Prescott of the Cowboys I would take Dak Prescott over Kirk 
Uh, a major reason for that is that I believe Dak Prescott, since he came into the league, has more rushing touchdowns than anyone else in the NFL for quarterbacks. And you know that's an element of the game that Dak brings that Kirk Cousins just absolutely does not. I mean, the, the lack of mobility is very much, um, if people remember, how Drew Bledsoe used to look, where it was just stand in one spot, go through your reads, and if someone comes and strip sacks you, they're going to do it because he's just not going to move out of the way. And the fact that Prescott can throw for what? I think he had the second or third most yards in the NFL yeah. last year, operated one of the top offenses in the NFL last season. And then you add that running element, the fact that he can score with his legs from the goal line, he can get a third and long by taking off, and he has a willingness to do it. Like, I don't even think Dak Prescott is super blazing fast, but he just has that awareness to be able to do it at the right times. I think that gives him a better chance to win games. Because the way that I think about any of these comparisons is like, who would I want to win games with? If I had a good team, like, would I win eight? Would I win nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever? And the fact that Prescott has won 13 games before uh, in his career with a great setup, which I think Kirk Cousins has had in Minnesota. Um, You know, I guess I would lean his direction because he brings that additional element, even though I think that Kirk is a more accurate quarterback. Dak had 4,900 passing yards last year and 30 touchdowns. What about his NFC East rival, Carson Wentz? Oh, Carson Wentz is one of the hardest in the NFL to analyze for me because, you know, 2017, again, with an amazing team, an incredible offensive line, great weapons, everybody healthy. He showed that he could be MVP level. And I don't think that Kirk Cousins has ever shown that he can be an MVP quarterback. The one thing you have to really respect Kirk Cousins for is the man stays healthy. I mean, he has taken some shots. He's gotten sacked. He's gotten pressured a ton. He's gotten hit a ton in Minnesota, but he seems to always find ways to protect himself. And he has a toughness element to his game that I think because of how he looks, like he's not very thick, you know, he's kind of a skinnier guy and Mm -hmm. his personality can be a little bit different than your sort of, uh, you know, spitting glass or whatever glass eating type of leader or anything like that. He's a little bit different. Um, This is a guy that keeps a spreadsheet of his favorite office episodes. So he's not really like that. So you don't think like toughness immediately with Kirk Cousins, but he's out there every single week. And that would be my concern with Carson Wentz is that he can be a little reckless with his body and get himself hurt. So if you were asking me which quarterback has a higher ceiling, it's Carson Wentz. But if I'm a franchise and I need 16 games out of my quarterback with a team that's a Super Bowl contender, I'm probably taking Cousins. Okay, fine. So we have here a 2-2 tie. This is the tiebreaker. It is Matt Ryan or Kirk Cousins. I'll go, I'll go Matt Ryan there. I mean, Matt Ryan, when he had the Kyle Shanahan offense 2016 in Atlanta, was unbelievable I mean MVP of the league and again when you were talking about the ceiling I think that Matt Ryan's is higher I think Matt Ryan is a is just a purely better quarterback in a lot of different areas I think he can make plays off schedule if you ask him to I think he's got a better arm than Kirk Cousins does Um, he's probably every bit as accurate as Cousins and has a little more of a moxie to him and a leadership to him than Kirk Cousins does and just the bigger sample on Matt Ryan is that the guy has been Uh, borderline Hall of Fame so far for his career. I think that there are a lot of people that would make that Hall of Fame case 
for Matt Ryan. These last couple of seasons have been, I don't know, some maybe he was good, but their team was bad. And last year, their offensive line was a, an abomination. Cautious, yeah. um, right. And so, you know, the, the peak Matt Ryan. So I guess if we're talking about this could be a different conversation, but like right now, Matt Ryan, I still probably take him over 16 games, but it's really close. If we're talking about five years ago, Matt Ryan in his peak, it's easily Matt Ryan over Kirk Cousins. But I think right now that's a that's a close one. I would still I would still probably lean Ryan. So yeah, so this is what I mean when I say everyone is just all over the map with Kirk because probably the only quarterbacks I would take over Kirk on this list would be Carson Wentz and Matt Ryan. You of course had it in a different order. So this is what I mean, and this is why I wanted to do this little exercise here to see exactly how you have it shake out. But for everyone has everyone just has a different take on Kirk. It's really hard to figure out exactly what people think about him. I do want to go back to this current Vikings team because as you said before, this offense is going to look a little bit different next year for Kirk Cousins. With Stephon Diggs no longer there, he was traded away this offseason. What was your initial reaction when that happened? Because Rick Spielman kept on saying that it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And eventually Buffalo comes in with that offer and he pulls the trigger. What was your reaction to it? And were you surprised that it, they finally moved on? Yeah, I think, and part of this is the point about your exercise with would you pick Cousins over this other quarterback because so much of Kirk Cousins' career is purely based on what's around him. So 2017, his team isn't very good and he's not very good. And then last year, his team is really good and he's really good. I yeah. mean, so, yeah. you know, he, he. I think that he is very much subject to what's going on around him. So if you have a couple of receivers get hurt, if you don't have the perfect offensive system, you're going to see his play drop maybe farther than some of the the more gifted quarterbacks like a Carson Wentz or more mobile quarterbacks who can make up for some of those things. But the point on uh, Stefan Diggs with Rick Spielman is basically, yeah, that they had no plans to trade Stefan Diggs, but the offer came in and they also had to look at their salary cap situation for this year and especially for 2021 and say, all right, well, there is a benefit here potentially if we can draft a receiver in a really thick receiver draft. You, you mm -hmm. named all those 2017 running backs. I think the same thing is going to happen with uh, 2020 wide receivers where yeah. there's going to be a dozen of them that we walk away and say, wow, I mean, all these guys were really, really good. And so when you're looking at the, the draft board and you're looking at your salary cap, you start to say, all right, well, maybe this is worth it. Um, but that trade was really, I would say, a year, a year and a half in the making. Probably goes back to the end of 2018 where Stefan Diggs was not particularly happy with the offensive direction, where it seemed like Mike Zimmer wanted to push much harder to go in a run-first offense, a play-action offense, rather than one that focused solely on Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen as their uh, main ways to gain yardage. And, you know... I kind of agree with him on a, on that point that if we're talking about 2020 and what wins in the NFL, your passing efficiency is probably the way to win. I mean, the two of the top most efficient offenses, top scoring offenses uh, last year end up in the Super Bowl. And that has been pretty much the case with every team that's gone to the Super Bowl since the Broncos in 2015, which now feels quite a long time ago. And yeah. so I think that that was really at the heart of the issue that Stephon Diggs 
wanted not only to win games and believe that was the way to do it was through throwing the ball to him and Adam Thielen, but also show the talent that he has. I mean, if you talk to people who analyze wide receivers or young wide receivers and you ask them, who do you study with their route running? It's Stephon Diggs. And when you look at the success of Teddy Bridgewater, Case Keenum, Sam Bradford, Kirk Cousins, when throwing to Stephon Diggs, all of them have over 100 quarterback ratings when targeting him. And I think that that says a lot about how much better he can make quarterbacks, which may end up being the case in Buffalo with Josh Allen. Um, But he knows that. He's well aware of all of those numbers that point to his efficiency. When you throw him the ball, you succeed. And I I think he wanted to take those elite route running skills and the big-time playmaking ability and get more than what did he have last year? Something like 90 targets, 63 catches, which Mm -hmm. is what barely in the top 20 in the NFL. I think he wants those things for himself to really show. I kind of make a Kyrie Irving, LeBron James type of comparison that Kyrie wanted to go to Boston to show that he could win with his own team and not be in LeBron's shadow. And and I think that with Diggs, it's a similar sort of feelings. I want to show everybody how good I really am. Give me the opportunity to do it. And 63 catches is not really that opportunity. Yeah, Diggs finished last year with over 1,100 yards. He had just over 60 receptions. But what I'm trying to figure out here is just how big of a loss is it that he's not going to be there in 2020? Because if you look at Twitter, there are Vikings fans who are, you know, they were sick and tired of everything that was going on, all the drama they wanted to move on. Those Vikings fans are telling Bills fans that this guy is going to have a temper tantrum by week five. But there are other Vikings fans who are like, man, this is a big loss. He's one of the best route runners at football. We don't have that now. So exactly how big of a loss is it? How significant is it that he is not going to be there next year? Well, I think that those things about the temper tantrums and so forth is is pretty unfair because I've talked to former and current teammates of his off the record who have told me, look, he's one of the best teammates I've had because you go out there every Sunday and the guy is burning at 110 degrees. I mean, he's just always going to be going 100% all the time and desperately wants to win and plays with a lot of fire and emotion. I mean, how about the Super Bowl? We see Tyron Matthew go off on the sideline and immediately it's always the announcer's reaction to be like, oh man, guy's having a meltdown. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times it's just voicing frustration. It's trying to fix what's going on out there. It's trying to pump everybody else up. And I appreciated the NFL films cameras catching Stephon Diggs saying to Kirk Cousins, play your game. Like he was yelling and he was upset because their offense had failed on third down, but he was saying, play your game, trust yourself, go through your reads, those different things. So a lot of times we just see someone yelling on a sideline and we call it a temper tantrum. We call it a meltdown. I mean, he's an emotional player and he's made mistakes sometimes took off his helmet after a touchdown and got a 15 yard flag for it in green Bay. Those are stuff, you know, you don't want that. And you certainly don't want what happened in week four where he got so frustrated that he skipped practice to show his displeasure with the offense. You definitely don't want that. But I think that we are so quick to label somebody a diva and say, oh, the guy's a diva. Uh, he's a problem. You got to get him out of there. You're better off without him. I mean, that is just not the case for how people who played with or coached Stefan Diggs, by the way. I'm sure you've posted on your site things that Mike Zimmer has said mm-hmm. about Stefan Diggs. He didn't call him a diva. He did. And, and this is even, you know, behind the scenes too. They were frustrated with some of the way he acted, no doubt. But uh, as far as who you want in the locker room with you, Diggs is always a guy that gets mentioned for who you'd want uh, on by your side. And that is a big loss. I mean, to have somebody who consistently week in and week out 
came out and challenged the defense and forced them to dedicate two players to him, put somebody over the top because he was so successful with deep routes, uh, but he could run underneath yards after catch. I mean, he can get open on any type of route and corners will talk about how challenging he is to face with Thielen. He's very good, but he doesn't have now the attention going to Stefan Diggs as well and split between the two. So it is a big to replace whether they can continue to have the same offensive production. I think it solely relies on how much Justin Jefferson can do right away and how much Irv Smith grows because Irv Smith is going to be looked at as a hybrid tight end slash wide receiver and could spend a lot of time in the slot or even outside wide receiver. But the expectations are very, very high for Irv Smith. So you can, take a couple of guys and replace that production, but replacing a receiver who's that good with his route running that dangerous deep, that good with contested catches is very, very hard to do. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm happy you brought up the temper tantrum label is not fair because I'm here from New York. And when old Dell Beckham jr. Was here of the giants, every time they showed him on the sidelines, they, the media would go crazy and talk about how he's having a temper tantrum and all that. And I thought it was unfair as well to him because I remember after, a while that that kept on happening to him, he posted a video on Instagram of Tom Brady doing it. And he's like, why don't you guys do the same thing to him? It's clearly not what we're doing. We're just showing energy. We're very passionate. And I do believe that is what Odell is about. And that is what Stefan Diggs is about. And um, we'll see exactly what happens there with the Vikings wide receiver core. We will talk about Justin Jefferson shortly, but I do want to flip over to the defense for a second because I was on a different podcast recently and I was asked if the Vikings are the favorites in the North. And I said, I think they are, but I'm still concerned about a few things. And one of them is the defense and the amount of pieces they lost this offseason. A lot of veteran losses. Is the defense a concern for you considering the fact that there will be new faces on this defense and we don't even know if we'll have a training camp so all these guys could get together on the field? Yeah, no, definitely. And, and uh, for both of those reasons at the top of the list that you would be concerned about their defense going into this year because you're going to have zero cornerbacks on the roster over the age of 25 as we speak. Maybe they'll sign a veteran eventually here, but um, nobody in the cornerback room has a thousand NFL snaps so far. And if you look at how things break down, you know, cornerbacks are at the top of the list in terms of like pro football focuses wins above replacement, like right below quarterbacks and wide receivers are, are corners because they have such a, a lot to do with dictating you know, whether your passing game is successful or not. And that's a big deal to have, uh, you know, Jeff Gladney coming right in. Mike Hughes, you're hoping that he's healthy. He has not been so far in his career. And then beyond that, a lot of question marks. Cameron Dantzler in the third round. Holton Hill was a guy who got suspended for eight games last year and didn't see much of the playing field. The, those two things are probably connected. The only thing that I would go back to, though, is and, – and Everson Griffin is a huge loss because we talk about how Stephon Diggs drew so much attention on the offensive side and it's hard to quantify. Well, the same thing goes for Everson Griffin, that on, on the right defensive end position, teams went into games saying, how will we slow down Everson Griffin? And they rarely were able to succeed with that um, from what I saw covering the team over the last few years. I mean, Griffin is one of those guys who plays every single snap and – now they're going to have to have a Fadi Adenabo to see if you know, he could possibly take the next step from showing some nice things from last year, what kind of rotation they're going to have on the defensive line. But there's question marks there. The one thing you would argue for why they could still have a top half of the league defense, if not even better than that, is they still have their superstar talent in Eric Hendricks, Daniel Hunter, and Harrison Smith. Those guys are Pro Bowl 
all pro level players that are impossible to replace and they're in their primes and they're still good and they're coming back. And then Mike Zimmer, his history, I don't know when the last time it was that he had a defense out of the top 10 in points. I think in 2014, maybe he was 11th in points allowed and he had just taken over the 32nd ranked defense. Zimmer is every bit the brilliant defensive tactician and game planner that he's been presented as. And if there's anybody who can work around some of the shortcomings of his young players and some of the new faces, it's probably Mike Zimmer. By the way, what is the story with Everson Griffin? Because I know he announced on Instagram he's not going to return, but then Mike Zimmer said the door is not officially closed, and you made it sound right now like it's over. Is that is that the case? I have left the door slightly open for him just deleting his Instagram announcement that he was not coming back to uh, Minnesota, but I would say I put it at maybe a 10% chance that he returns. I think that they would like to just move on to Afadi Adenabo, give him an opportunity. They also drafted DJ Wanham, who they are very high on. They've talked about him being an Andre Patterson, who's their defensive coordinator slash D-line coach. They've talked about him wanting to get his hands on DJ Wanham, and, and they've got a bunch of guys who they're developing as defensive linemen, and I think that that signifies, yeah, okay, maybe it's time to move on. But you know, this is a team that, like we mentioned earlier, always seems to bring back the same guys and the devil they know. We didn't expect Anderson Deho to ever come back yeah. after he had left for Philadelphia, and then here he is starting uh, in the playoffs. So you know, these things do tend to happen with this Vikings team, and they could certainly use him. I mean, Adenabo had seven and a half sacks last year, which is very, very good, but you know, being a rotational rusher versus playing every snap is, is quite a different conversation. So I think Everson could help them for sure. And they've shown that they're not in a full rebuild mode by franchise tagging Anthony Harris. It's just, does Everson want to kind of wait this out, see if he can go do some team visits now that facilities are starting to open, which I think has been a major part of the delay is not being able to bring in a 32 year old player and you know, just give him a physical and see what he looks like before you give him $10 million. Um, so, you know, maybe if Griffin goes to some other teams and they say, sorry, we can't do it, then he might come back on a cheap one-year deal for the Vikings. I'd leave that door open, but I do think they have enough young talent there that they would like to move on and see what they have. Yeah, Everson Griffin, one of the best remaining free agents on the market, along with Jadavian Clowney. We'll see how that pans out in the coming days and weeks. I do want to flip over now to the NFL draft because there was no team in the NFL that picked more players than the Minnesota Vikings with 15 selections. I want to touch base on a couple of players. First of all, Justin Jefferson. For those who listened to this podcast before the draft, you know I was very high on Justin Jefferson. What are your expectations for him in this offense with Adam Thielen and company? Yeah, I think that with Justin Jefferson, the most intriguing part is that he was a slot receiver in college and he's coming to an offense that uses a lot of condensed sets. So there's ways that they can get him off the line of scrimmage, but doesn't utilize the slot receiver quite as much as some other offenses. I mean, this is a team and, and an offensive coordinator that loves to use two tight ends and two outside wide receivers and not necessarily the 11 personnel and three wide receivers that we see all the time. So will they be able to cater to what worked best for him at LSU? But what I think really translates well with Justin Jefferson is one, he's a great athlete. Uh, I don't know if you've ever 
run across the website relative athletic scores that sort of combines what they did at the NFL combine with height and weight and then forms a one through 10. Well, he was one of the top guys in this last NFL draft and just pure athleticism and what he did at the combine. So you can use him as a playmaker. You can use him on short passes or bubble screens, reverses, things like that. If he isn't fully developed yet as a wide receiver and a route runner, which I think is where he needs to come along. Um, I was doing my one of my own podcasts mm-hmm. with uh, a former NFL wide receiver. We were breaking down Justin Jefferson tape, and he was talking about you know the details when it comes to slants, when it comes to hitches, when it comes to getting off press coverage. All these things require uh, big leaps from college to the NFL. And if Jefferson wasn't necessarily doing that a lot in college or dominant at that in college, there could be a big jump. So, I mean, you, you put it probably somewhere in the range of him having a significant role, but not – really replacing Stefan Diggs on his own. Maybe he ends up with 40 or 45 catches, 500 something yards. And you'd be really happy with that for first year production, especially considering everything that's happened with COVID-19. Yeah, we had Dane Brugler of The Athletic here on the podcast after the draft. And he was saying how he spoke to someone in the Vikings organization. And they told him that they were stunned that Jefferson dropped to them. They thought that they would have to trade up in order to get Jefferson. And he ends up falling right into their laps. And I'm sure they're excited to add him onto this offense, especially now that Stephon Diggs is not there. We mentioned before how the Vikings lost plenty of veterans this offseason on the defensive side of the ball. Their second first-round pick was TCU cornerback Jeff Gladley. Now, this is someone who played a lot at TCU, but obviously transitioning from college to the pros, it's not a walk in the park. There's going to be some learning curves. How do you project him for his rookie season on this defense, considering the fact that the Vikings, they lost three of their top cornerbacks in free agency. So I'm assuming he's going to be a starter, right? Yeah, I think it's a great point that nobody coming into the NFL draft at that position had more experience than Jeff Gladney. And when things are really thrown off here and there's no OTAs to get your feet wet or minicamp to get your feet wet, that being thrown to the Lions right away uh, when it comes to training camp and then right into the NFL season. And even there's a report, as you know, that uh, we could only have like two preseason games. So that Mm -hmm. makes it even tougher for someone like Jeff Gladney. And that That development curve in the first year is incredibly difficult for cornerbacks. I did some research on this for a piece a couple of weeks ago, and I'll just give you the bottom line. Not too many rookie corners are great. And a lot of times you're sort of hanging on for dear life. I mean, there are different rules. Meg Zimmer talks about this all the time. There are different rules in college than there are in the NFL. So they have to train these guys how to just not get pass interference. But at the same time, what I really like about Gladney from watching him back, and then I talked to Gary Patterson from TCU as well, and what keeps coming up is that the guy is a dog in a good way, like that he has a lot of fight in him, that he's an extremely competitive player, and you can see it on tape how hard he competes, and he has a a great athletic profile as well, you know, and he played through injury and all those things that you sort of look for when you're talking about guys making a quick transition and getting through the adversity of their first NFL season. That said, there are going to be moments guaranteed where he's getting smoked because he's going to have to go right into this role. I just, I mean, it's possible that if he's far behind, they would start Holton Hill and Mike Hughes and Chris Boyd, who they drafted in the seventh round in their impressed by his special teamwork, but I don't think that's what they want to do. I think they want to give Jeff Gladney every chance to succeed, step right in and be a starting corner, even if they're 
are bumps along the road, but it's not going to be easy. There's one more player I want to touch base on over here in the draft because there were plenty of people who I trust in the media who said Ezra Cleveland would go late first or early second in the draft. He ends up going to the Vikings at number 58, the bottom of the second round. That also took away any chance of them trading for Trent Williams, but that's a different story. But do you see a scenario where Cleveland is starting day one in 2020 at tackle or even at guard? I mean, a scenario, yes. Well, the only scenario that I see is if he, he either just blows them away with his early work in training camp and they decide to move Riley Reef inside, or if Riley Reef gets hurt, then Ezra Cleveland might start at left tackle, but I could still see them starting Rashad Hill, who has been their swing tackle since late in the 2016 season. It's actually good. Like at left tackle last year, he stepped in in the game against Philadelphia and allowed zero pressures the entire game when Riley Reef got hurt. And for swing tackles, there aren't too many in the league who can handle their own. And Rashad Hill is a, is a borderline starting player. So I, I really do think they want Ezra Cleveland to follow the Brian O'Neill plan where Brian O'Neill was drafted in the second round in 2018. He did not play right away. Rashad Hill started. And then midway through the season in a game against Green Bay, Maybe that was just his debut. Midway through the season, I remember Rashad Hill getting hurt and then Brian O'Neill having to come in. And he held on for dear life a lot of times. He was not ready to play in the NFL yet, but he really showed some fight to him and was terrific overall for somebody in that situation who uh, even the team thought wasn't ready to play full time. And then the next year, which was last season, Brian O'Neill was their best lineman by far. It wasn't even close. And I think they're hoping for the same thing with Ezra Cleveland, where you kind of know that Riley Reef, with his age and injury history will get banged up. He'll have to come out of a game. He'll miss a game here or there. Get, get him some experience get his feet underneath him a little bit. And then for 2021, you plan on him being the starter because there's no way they're going to pay Riley Reef, whatever it is. I think it's like $15 million for his salary cap. It's just not going to happen, right? I mean, there's like 0% chance that Riley Reef uh, is playing on that contract next year. So I think that was the, that was the plan. Take someone who has not played against very high competition, Boise State, but has an incredible athletic profile and the potential to be an excellent left tackle, develop them for a year and put them in. I think way too many times because the draft is so exciting and because everybody's got a lot of pressure from the front office to coaches, they draft someone and they say, all right, well, this guy is our starting whatever, lock him in. And you, know, you even see this, like think about the best quarterback in the NFL, Patrick Mahomes sat out his first year and it benefited him a lot. And I don't think it's a bad thing either. If they do the same thing with Ezra Cleveland, have him mostly sit out practice against great NFL players and then be ready to go in 2021. Right. So looking at it now, we've only talked about three guys out of 15 who were drafted. Who else from this draft? If you had to name one more, do you think could make an impact in 2020 for this team? Yeah, I think that uh, Cameron Dantzler is the wild card here because he ran a really poor 40 at the NFL Combine. But the last time I checked, running 40 yards in shorts is not football. And, right, so uh, he wouldn't be the, the first guy or the last guy to have a bad performance at the combine when he had a great college career and then become a good NFL player. The one that probably comes to mind right away is Orlando Brown, right? That he. Yeah was horrific at the NFL combine and everybody dropped him from a late first. And then he ends up going in the third and lo and behold, the guy's a good NFL player because he was good at football and not the combine. Well, I think that Dantzler has a little bit of the same thing when I've watched him in college, especially his matchups with Jamar chase of LSU. 
He is impressive. He can run foot for foot or length for length or whatever you want to call it. Run with Jamar Chase down the sideline at full speed. Okay, so I don't know if he runs a 4.6 or a 4.4 or whatever the video they put out of him running a 4.38, which is probably bogus too. I mean, but if he's in pads with a helmet on covering a guy who's as fast as Jamar Chase and he can run with him, well, then I know that he can run with NFL wide receivers. So he might be one of those draft gems. He allowed 41% completion percentage into his coverage against really, really good competition and has kind of a natural... Uh, football player type of feel to him when you watch him in coverage. And so I think that he is a wild card for one of those starting positions because right now the nickel corner, the two outside corners, those are completely open for the Vikings. And it's going to be a real weird situation if training camps only go for two weeks or are limited in some way for the Vikings to make a decision. But if it's a full training camp, he's got an opportunity to really rise to the challenge and they could end up having two starting rookie corners. Yeah, and I agree with you so much that, you know, so many people take the 40 seriously. And in a way, it's something you should be looking at, but it's not everything. That game against Jamar Chase was just so impressive. And for the Vikings to get him at number 98 overall, that is someone who could eventually become a hidden gem. And hey, listen, the Vikings got Stephon Diggs in the fifth round. Look what he became. We've seen it before with this team. I want to wrap this up here with a quick five. I do this with plenty of my guests. We do five questions. You try to keep it short. If you want to expand on anything, feel free to do so. Number one, I still think the Packers will be competitive in 2020. But do you think the Lions or the Bears will be a threat in the NFC North in 2020? The Lions are the biggest wild card to me because they have all the signs of a worst-to-first team. Their quarterback was hurt last year, so they drafted high. But if Matt Stafford's healthy for a full season, we know that he can be a Pro Bowl-level quarterback. Their defense stacked up with a lot of players in free agency. They could be a lot better. They've been drafting along the offensive line. Frank Regnow should be coming into his prime. And they get a running back who could be that impact player right away in DeAndre Swift. Plus, they have a great wide receiver duo. Like, everything points to this team should be really good. But what holds me back, and I'm going to talk with some Lions guys on my podcast, and maybe they can convince me otherwise. But what holds me back is their head coach. That everybody who seems to come into contact with Matt Patricia, who feels good about talking on the record later, does not have great things to say. And, you know, Darius Slay being the most recent example, but also Damon Harrison – Uh, there seems to be a lot of implications that he doesn't know how to connect with his players. And also for somebody who was a defensive coordinator has not been impressive on the defensive side so far. So they could have a great offense and still end up being mediocre, but they're the ones that you could see either just being the same old lions and firing Matt Patricia six weeks in or going 11 and five, going 12 and four, because I think they have the roster talent to do it. They to me are much more interesting than the bears that I think, by getting Nick Foles kind of locked themselves into 8-8. Eight eight. Yeah, Michael Rothstein, who covers the Lions for ESPN, he was on this podcast a couple of months ago, and he said this year will be a make-or-break year for Matt Patricia and Bob Quinn unless they have another injury-plagued season. Let's move on to number two. Which player on this Vikings roster does not get the national respect he deserves? 
Well, you know, I think I would have said Anthony Harris before because, uh, you know, he was a guy that went from undrafted to sort of thrust into the starting role to leading the NFL in interceptions. I don't know if you if you asked uh, 100 people who led the NFL in interceptions, how many would get that it was Anthony Harris. But since he's been franchise tagged and a lot of conversation about his contract, it's a little harder to make the case. I think the guy that I would probably go with is Brian O'Neill. Uh, their right tackle. I mean, A, offensive lineman. So he's never going to get really the attention. But even then, with the rise of PFF and more coverage and more attention and more film breakdowns, we have a great sense for who the rising star uh, offensive linemen are and who some of the best offensive linemen are in the NFL. I think that after this year, we'll be talking about Brian O'Neill in that same category as one of the elite right tackles in the league. Interesting. We had Damien Woody here on last week, and he was telling us that offensive linemen were fine with not getting the respect that we get, <laughs> which was really funny to me. I asked him the question, like, listen, you guys only get attention when you guys have a holding penalty or you allow a sack. And he's like, hey, we know that and we're okay with that. And I was like, okay, if you guys are okay with that, go for it. Um, yeah, I, do th- I do think that the rise of PFF and film analysis has given a lot of attention. I'll, I'll give you an example. Mitchell Schwartz in the playoffs this year was as good as any player in the playoffs the last five years. I mean, just an unbelievable performance by Mitchell Schwartz. And now we know that because we can look at how he graded by PFF and we can look at the back on the film and things like that. So I think that eventually we'll have a lot more guys in the hall of fame because of just better ways to quantify what they did. So you're, you're right that offensive linemen always have that mentality, but, uh, maybe a little more attention will go Brian O'Neill's way after this year. Right. I'm very into giving attention to guys who don't get the attention they deserve. So um, I'm working on a piece on my website about players who are underappreciated. I might have to add Brian O'Neill onto that list. Um, number three here, the Vikings have had obviously plenty of heartbreaking moments in their history. As I said, Damian Woody was here last week and he said, you remember the losses more than the wins, which one really sticks out to you as one, which makes you think, man, what could have been? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, the Vikings do have an unbelievable history of this. I mean, they have the best winning percentage of any team not to win the Super Bowl. And and if you look look at the top top 10 winning percentages in NFL history, I think they might be fifth or sixth. And all other teams in the top 10 at least have won Super Bowl. So that tells you a lot about this Vikings history. So I'll go go a couple of deep cuts for you just just, uh, to give your audience an idea of how often this stuff happens to the Vikings. They were up with 30 seconds to go in 2016 against the Detroit Lions after running a reverse to their tight end, uh, Rhett Ellison, at the goal line to score on fourth down. And they come out and Matt Stafford throws a 40-yard pass on on the first play. So it goes down to, you know, four or five seconds, gets him to midfield. Matt Prater, who's just not from this planet, kicks a 58 or 59 yard field goal. That could have been good from 70. It's the best kick I've ever seen personally in my life. And then the lions get the ball back, throw a short pass to a golden Tate who throws Harrison Smith out of the way, which I've never seen happen to Harrison Smith ever before they score they win just like that. And the Vikings missed the playoffs that year by one game. So <laughs> all they had to do was run out a little more time before they did their tight end reverse or whatever they would call it at the goal line. And none of that would have happened. So that kind of tells you that it's not just the ones you remember, like Blair Walsh's shank or like uh, Gary Anderson missing from 38 yards when he had made every field goal that year. But it even happens on a, a play to or a year to year basis. Uh, even this year, how about this? They lost to Kansas city and Matt Moore 
in that game. Yeah. Uh, you know, so they, and what happened on that one was just to tell you how deep this goes, uh, their punter was scared of kicking it to Tyree kill who they put back at the end of the game, looking for a long punt return. So he shanks it out of bounds for 25 yards. Matt Moore completes a pass 50 yard field goal is good for the chiefs. Chiefs end up because of this getting a first round bye, right. And yeah. the Vikings end up as the sixth seed because of that. So there you have it. It's unbelievable how many times that's happened to the Vikings. You didn't even mention any of the notable ones. You didn't mention Brett Favre's interception to Tracy Porter. You didn't mention Blair Walsh's missed field goal. You only mentioned two regular season instances. And that just shows you how much heartbreak the Vikings fan base has had over the years. Number four here, the Vikings have also had plenty of great players over the years your answer does not have to be a viking but who was your best or favorite player to watch hmm. do you mean watched as it like on tv or watched it as covered as a journalist no just watched growing up could be whenever it is yeah i think that um i'll just give you a quick three and they're all super obvious and i'll, I'll give you a, a deep cut one and then three obvious ones so the deep cut one is sam mills former Carolina Panther, yeah. uh, keep pounding. He was, that was his saying. And a guy who was in the USFL and made his US, barely made his USFL team, then barely made the New Orleans Saints, then became the key, one of the key linebackers in the Dome Patrol, the great defenses of the New Orleans Saints, then goes to the Carolina Panthers and helps make them an NFC championship team and I believe just their second year as a franchise. One of the best middle linebackers of all time and undersized at maybe 5'8", five, 5'9". Five, so I always absolutely loved Sam Mills. The best players, uh, Thurman Thomas is one. Grew up, I grew up in Buffalo, and if Thurman Thomas was playing today, he'd be a better version of Christian McCaffrey, I think that he was the all-around receiver. He could go down the field. He could run slant routes, out routes, whatever, and was one of the best running backs in the league. He led all-purpose yards four years in a row. I don't think that ever happens again uh, in the NFL. Barry Sanders, another one, human highlight reel. And, I mean, you could pick Moss here as the Vikings connection, but I would, I would also throw in Chris Carter probably long-term does not get enough love because of how great Randy Moss is. A complete highlight reel of one-handed catches, keeping the toes in, the toe taps, and things like that. The, maybe the best hands of all time. So there's a couple that just pop into my head. And I would say Harrison Smith is the best player I've ever covered uh, in terms of just someone who impacts every part of the game, is absolutely brilliant, can cover wide receivers, tight ends, running backs. He can blitz. He can stop the run. He can play deep. He can do pretty much anything. And uh, he's another guy that probably does fly a little bit under the radar because there's so much star power on the Vikings defenses recently. You know, you mentioned all these guys as some of the favorite players you ever got to watch. And this is what makes the NFL so great to me that not all of those guys were first overall picks or first round picks. Sam Mills, for example, was an undrafted guy. Chris Carter was taken in the supplemental draft. So when you look at it like that, these players who end up being so great, it just it's amazing to me how you could find great players all over in the NFL. It does not have to be an early draft choice. Last one here for you, Matt, and I appreciate you coming on here. Assuming we have a training camp this year, what will be the biggest storyline surrounding this Minnesota Vikings team? 
I think that it will be the cornerback position. I think we'll be writing about that every single day. Who's getting what reps? Who's playing nickel corner? Because right now we don't even know. I mean, Mackenzie Alexander signed with the Cincinnati Bengals on a very favorable deal for Cincinnati. One, to one get year, a, four million, yeah. Yeah, an extremely solid nickel corner that clearly just wanted out of Minnesota after last year. But, uh, you know, will it be Mike Hughes, a first-round pick? Um, but, you know, Jeff Gladney's always played outside corner. Cameron Dantzler is not really fitting of the profile of a nickel corner. Neither is Holton Hill. So, you know, will somebody else emerge? They also drafted Harrison Hand, who I know basically nothing about because there haven't been OTAs <laughs> or mini camps. Um, but they drafted him, and, you know, it's going to be kind of open season. Chris Boyd is another guy that I mentioned who really wowed them on special teams and played in week 17, so he'll have a chance, too, to be in that mix. That, to me, is far and away the number one storyline for the Vikings. It's going to be fascinating to see exactly what ends up happening here. I mean, we don't even know if we're going to have a training camp, for God's sake. So it's going to be interesting to see what exactly happens with this team. A lot of question marks, a lot of interesting storylines. Matt, I really appreciate the time here today. Everyone can check out Matt's work at purpleinsider.com. Subscribe to that and the Purple Insider podcast as well. Matt, thanks again for coming on, and we will keep in touch. Yep, thanks so much for having me. So there it is. That was Matthew Collar. Special thanks to him for joining me on the podcast this week. Also, make sure to go give him a follow on Twitter. It is at Matthew Collar. And make sure to check out all the other great work that he is doing. He is just always on point with his stuff. That does it here for this week's My Sports Update Football Podcast. Please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast so other NFL fans just like you can find this podcast whenever they go and search NFL or when they're searching football on whatever podcast platform they use. You doing something as small as that is a big help and it is greatly appreciated. I am your host, Ari Mero. I'll be back with another episode next week with another special guest. Until then, so long, stay safe, and I'll talk to you all next week. Hey guys, this is Ian Happ from the Chicago Cubs. I'm excited to announce that my show, The Compound, is now part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Join me and my teammates, Dakota Meckis and Zach Short. This week, we welcome Cubs first baseman, World Series champion, Anthony Rizzo to The Compound. Check it out. Subscribe. The Compound on the Blue Wire Podcast Network.